Mark 10, 28 through 31. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children's and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Hi. If we haven't met, my name is Josh. I'll tell you more about that in just a second. That's a boring way to start a talk like this. Uh, So I'll tell you a more entertaining story. You ready for this? Thanks, Gerald. He's ready. Yeah. When I was a little boy, uh, and it only happened the one time, my dad dyed his hair. I don't know why he did that. Uh, he, was, he was a good dad. You know, he's attentive, present, loving, but he could also, he's a southern man, so he could be private and solitary. So I guess, you know, there's a lot about the, the inner machinations of his interior world that I didn't know. And maybe the, the, my theory is that the first signs of gray had appeared in his otherwise brown head of hair like mine now, and maybe he panicked. So he bought one of those like uh, cheap rectangular boxes from the local pharmacy, the one that seemed to him to match his natural brown color and that would hide the ominous first signs of gray. And then he mixed the color with the developer, you know, he lathered the whole thing together, bathroom stinking of chemicals like it does. And he put it on his head and he waited. And then when the whole thing was over, his hair was very red. Uh, It was like a, a bright cartoony red, Ronald McDonald red. And created this uh, bizarre contrast because he had a, a very brown beard. And so he looked weird. He looked real weird. And the next morning was Sunday. This happened on a Saturday night. Uh, Sunday was church. And uh, so he says to himself, he says, what will people say about my strange hair? Uh, now, you didn't know my dad, so you'll have to trust me when I say that this is a hilarious predicament. Um, He's like the quintessential NASCAR barbecue southern man. And, uh, and he had dyed his hair red for some reason. Our family never, ever missed church, but my dad told the family that he had somehow suddenly contracted an illness in the hours after dyeing his hair. And then rather than infect, you know, the innocent parishioners, he had to, he had to stay home and rest. So the rest of us went to church. Everyone was asking about my dad's unusual absence. Eventually, my mom told a friend of hers about the hair dye in private, uh, the Ronald McDonald read the whole thing. And the two of them were giggling through whispers. Uh, That woman told her husband and that dude told his friend. So naturally, that afternoon the doorbell rang. And (laughs) small church, small town, uh, word spreads. The, (laughs) The deacons of New Providence Baptist concluded that it was their spiritual responsibility to visit Jerry Porter at his uh, home that Sunday afternoon, lest he feel somehow unloved, you know? Uh, And these are God-fearing Baptists. You can't have all that. So they make the house call, ding-dong. And then unbeknownst, I might add, to my red-haired dad, he didn't know that anyone knew anything. So he just went marching right up to the front door looking like the Little Mermaid and he (laughs) flung the door open. The camera flash was the first surprise. And then uh, a group of his friends huddled together on our front porch fighting back tears of laughter. That was the second surprise. Now, 
I'll admit, I'm not entirely sure how much of that whole thing I remember from having actually witnessed it and how much of it I remember based on innumerable retellings from my mom or from people in our church over the years. It's a funny story. In the grand scheme of things, it's not that funny. It's like sitcom funny. Uh, It's funny if you know the people. That's not why I remember it, because it was so funny. I remember it because whether I observed it all myself or I only feel like I did because I heard the story so many times, I remember whether from witnessing or hearing it that I wanted that story for myself. Because in the story, even after they surprised him and taken the picture, my dad was on the front porch with all his friends and they were all laughing together. And there was this sense that even though he'd tried to hide something, everyone at the church knew about this silly thing that had happened. And there was this familial vulnerability to it all. Who else can one laugh about so ridiculous an embarrassment than friends like this. And I didn't know then, but would later find out that my dad had fought with these men over the years. He'd been angry with them from time to time across their friendship. But to me, it seemed idyllic. The whole thing ended in laughter. And that seemed to indicate, even though I was very small, something about friendship and family that I remember wanting even then. Now... That's not the last cute little anecdote that I've brought with me today, talking about community. You guys are in a series all about community. It's not the first time you've talked about this. It won't be the last. And you know, as well as I do, that pastors tend to uh, romanticize community. And full disclosure, I am going to talk about the beauty of community in just a little bit. But your church has a lot of integrity. If you've been here for a while, you know, for years, you've been speaking candidly about how wonderful it can be to share life with your brothers and sisters and how challenging or even painful it can be to share life. And I'll talk about that stuff too. But I've been in the game for a long time now. I've been showing up to a small group of some kind every single week for the last 13 years or some such thing. So... uh, Like a lot of you, I've accumulated stories across the the lifespan of community. If we haven't met, once again, my name is uh, Josh Porter. I used to work here, actually. More than seven years ago, they sent me across the river to start a church called Van City. Think of us like your little brother that you just found out you had. Uh, (laughs) Or think of us like a child that has left home, but I still keep coming over here to drink your coffee and sit in your meetings and borrow your pastors to come teach at my church. Uh, Van City is, like you, currently spending our Sundays talking about what it means for the church to be a community. And Tyler asked me to come and talk about community as a gift, which is refreshing because over the years since leaving to start Van City, I've been back lots of times, but usually to talk about suffering or evil or like weird scenes in the Bible involving incest and decapitations. So I'm out of my element, community as a gift. I was like, is this right? Here I am. Bear with me. I am grateful to be here in uh, October, though, as we celebrate the death of summer. Amen? (laughs) Wow, wow. I thought I was going to turn the room against me. This week, honestly, it's been a, I feel good. This has been a soul-soothing preview of the many months on the horizon when the the soul-draining sweat stink and halogen bulb ugliness of summer are finally banished by the hand of God, and the world becomes cozy and comfortable and aesthetically pleasing once again. Anyway, this is my banter. This is my warm-up banter. Uh, Now that I've turned some of you against me, let's do some Bible work. Uh, A minute ago, 
We read from one first century biography of Jesus that we now call the Gospel of Mark. If you have a Bible in hand, go ahead and turn there if you're not there already, Mark chapter 10. In context, the scene that we just read comes immediately after this fascinating exchange in which a rich guy comes up to Jesus and he asks him about something called eternal life. Now, if you know the story, Jesus tells the rich guy that he has to sell everything he has, give it away to the poor, and the guy just won't do it. So he goes away sad. And then Jesus turns to his friends, his apprentices, and he tells them how hard it is, how nearly impossible it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then we read in Mark 10, beginning with verse 28, let's look at it one more time. Peter speaks up and says, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Peter, apparently feels the same way that we do about this terrible exchange between Jesus and the rich guy. You read the story and you're like, oh, Jesus, Jesus is going to ask me to do something like that. And we wonder, am I willing to sacrifice what is necessary in order to follow Jesus faithfully? Which is a scary question to ask sometimes, so we become like children. I've got three of these things now, uh, children, and complimenting one of them tends to activate some insecurity and conjure like a plea for affirmation from the other ones. You say to one, oh, you're so smart. And the other one's like, what about me? Am I smart? Oh, geez, just be cool for a second. I'll affirm you when someone isn't around to scavenge for the compliments. And that's, that's Peter, apparently. He seems to feel suddenly exposed or, or maybe insecure. I read one scholar this week who said that his question is essentially a plea to Jesus. And I imagine Jesus smiling when he turns and says to Peter, oh, I know Peter, and and God knows how much you've given up, and he is going to take care of you. You just watch. Yes, you may sacrifice ambitions and livelihood and even some close relationships for the sake of Jesus, but it won't be for nothing. And don't read this as a kind of a reward system, as if God requires you to go through painful bouts of proving your allegiance, but then you get a prize for doing it. It's not a tit-for-tat formula. It's a cause-and-effect dynamic. Yes, following Jesus will be, at times, in certain ways, very costly, but you get the kingdom of God as a result. Faithfulness to the way of Jesus could create enmity between brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers and children, but in the kingdom of God, you also gain brothers and sisters and mothers and children. To Jesus, the family of God, of God's people is a gift. But because he's Jesus, he can't help but throw the word persecution into his list of stuff you get when you get the kingdom. It's amazing. Wait and see all the amazing stuff. Also persecution and eternal life that you get. Now, most of you who have followed Jesus for any length of time, you probably don't need convincing of this tension, the good and the persecution. But let me overmake my point just for a minute here. First, in the book that we call Acts, we read from this just a little bit earlier this morning. It's a sequel to Luke's biography of Jesus. Acts documents the rise of the first Christian communities after Jesus has come back from the dead and then ascended into heaven. Weird, wild stuff. Read it on your own time. The Holy Spirit comes on the disciples. All kinds of new people are hearing the story of Jesus for the first time. It becomes this beautiful portrait of shared life. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions was their 
their own. They shared everything they had. Great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Amazing, beautiful picture of what it means to be the church. The people of God are finally actually fulfilling a way of life prescribed all the way back in the Torah. God's people have become essentially a new temple built from all kinds of people, knit together as a new family, a new kind of temple to house his presence and reveal it to the world. Then you turn the page and you get this story. A man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, if you keep reading that story... (laughs) There's this bonker scene where Ananias and Sapphira drop dead. There's my clickbait for uh, the book of Acts, which echoes an ancient story from Leviticus uh, chapter 10 in which two other individuals who had introduced corruption into the temple suddenly die. And both of those stories tend to confuse the modern sensibility because people just drop dead. But what I find so fascinating is how frustratingly relatable the whole thing is. In this particular story, it isn't some kind of wild debauchery to first infect this idyllic picture of communal love. It's just selfishness and dishonesty. The guy did sell property, and he did bring some of the money to the apostles, but he hoards a secret amount for himself, and then he lies about it. The more subtle poison, selfishness, deceit, many of you know well enough, is as deadly to life and community as is some kind of egregious debauchery. But if you want to know about the egregious debauchery, you just keep reading throughout the New Testament. Here, I'll show you what I'm talking about. Later, uh, in the book called Acts, a disciple of Jesus called Paul, he visits this port city called Corinth, and he tells people about Jesus, a bunch of people come to faith, and now a church community has taken shape in one of the most unlikely of places, the city of Corinth. Amazing, beautiful stuff. But then, if you turn some pages to the letter we call 1 Corinthians, Paul, he had moved on from Corinth to tell more people about Jesus, start more churches, and then he gets a letter telling him things have gone bananas back at the church in Corinth. The letter starts like this. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, which means that this is a church. It's a proper church. These are Christians to whom he's writing. They are sanctified. They're called to be holy. They belong to the same movement of Jesus as everyone else across the ancient Mediterranean. But as the letter goes on, You learn that within this community of sanctified believers, there are quarrels over who follows which leader. Some claim Paul, others claim Peter, some claim Apollos. There's sexual immorality in the church. There's people bragging about sexual immorality. There were lawsuits among the Christians. There was gluttony and drunkenness Drunkenness during communion. People were overlooking those in need. There was chaos in the gathering, people prioritizing their own unique spiritual experience and vying for spotlight at the expense of order and other people. And to be clear, in this letter, Paul corrects and rebukes all that stuff But when he closes the whole thing out, he writes, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus, amen. It's the last line in the letter, actually, the final verse. He doesn't say, my God, in light of all those things I just said, you guys are out to lunch, so I am shutting this thing down. This is a sham. He loves them in Christ Jesus. So they're still the church, still a community with all that terrible stuff on the list. Now, I'm no psychologist, but... 
Uh, I've been a pastor for a minute now, and it is my professional opinion that if you've got a church with people fighting about leadership and getting drunk in communion and filing lawsuits and doing all kinds of nasty stuff, my guess is that pain and conflict are rippling throughout the entire community. Now, my church is very small, and I'll tell you this for free. People get upset when other people do weird, messed up stuff. Uh, understandably so, and I hear about it. Now, Paul doesn't give us any stats or anything like that, but I'm assuming that not every single Christian in the Corinthian community was engaged in all this foolishness, and that means that there were other people who were probably just being hurt by it. And yet, throughout the letter, Paul never writes, this church is busted. (laughs) You good apples, get out of there, start something new, forget these other people. He writes at the end, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus, all of you. Why do we need this church, community, the whole thing? There was actually a time when scientists believed that addiction was mostly caused by simple exposure to addictive agents. The thinking went something like this. If someone tries something like heroin, they run the risk of becoming addicted to heroin, and there's some chemical and biological truth to that, and they knew because they tested this stuff out on rats. Uh, give the rats drugs to try and then offer them more and they will take the drugs, there you go. But then came an experiment called Rat Park. See, in an ordinary laboratory setup, the rat housing, you've probably seen it in movies, it's like tiny and cramped and isolated. And during the 50s and 60s in their effort to understand addiction, researchers would experiment on rats by fitting these cramped, isolated mammals each with their own self-injection apparatus. The rats were taught to pull a lever to produce a flow of morphine, and they did. And some rats became so hopelessly addicted that they stopped eating and drinking, and they only took drugs until they died from self-neglect, lonely in their little cages. And scientists thus concluded that the availability and use of drugs creates addiction and all of its subsequent fallout. But then in the late 70s, a Canadian psychologist called Bruce K. Alexander put this mode of thinking to the test by building something called Rat Park. Rather than isolating a single rat in a tiny, cold, sterile cube, Alexander created this luxurious rat fun world, 200 times the floor area of a standard laboratory cage. Rat Park was populated with all manner of rats, uh, comfortable places to sleep and play and mate. And in Rat Park, there were two water sources, one laced with morphine and one laced with nothing. And Alexander discovered that in Rat Park, very few rats ever even sampled the drug water. None of the rats used the water compulsively, and not a single rat overdosed. But it gets weirder. To really put Rat Park to the test, he upped the stakes. Having confirmed that rats love uh, sweetened syrup water, go figure, uh, he laced this irresistible sweet drink with morphine in an effort to lure otherwise sober rats to the drugs and thus addiction, they did the same for rats in ordinary tiny cages. The caged rats chugged the drug sugar water to death, quite literally, and the rats of Rat Park avoided it. Then the team gradually reduced the drug content of the sugar water over a period of days until the rats of Rat Park finally tested it, and then when they found that it was drained of its potency, they began to try it again. So he concluded that the rats were avoiding the effects of the drug not the taste of it. 
And they even evaluated the effects of withdrawal by giving both the caged rats and the rats of Rat Park no choice but drugged water for a period of days and then presented both groups with a choice between drugged water or ordinary H2O. On the choice days, the rats in the cages chose the drugs. The rats of Rat Park chose to endure painful withdrawal. Alexander and his team concluded that the rats of Rat Park were desperate to return to their sober social environment while the caged rats had no such lives to which they could return, so they opted for drugs. Rat Park seemed to demonstrate that exposure to and even use of addictive substances did not always create addiction in and of themselves. Instead, the cages our subjects are placed in create the necessary condition for addiction to occur. Human beings are obviously not rats, but scientists argue that Rat Park can teach us something important about connection. When people are healthy and given the ability to bond and connect with other people around them, in ordinary circumstances anyway, that is what they do. But if people are cut off or distracted from their ability to bond with other people, isolated from other people, they will seek to bond with something that promises a reprieve from the pain created by lack of bonding or loneliness. In other words, loneliness destroys people. All personalities, all people are designed to connect with other people. You don't have to follow Jesus to believe that there is something intrinsically dangerous about hyper-individualism and isolation and loneliness. But here's the rub. The gift of community is about more than just alleviating loneliness. There are all kinds of ways, healthy or decidedly less so, to alleviate loneliness. You don't have to come to church for that. Church is more than that. And the frustrating irony is that to actually live into the beautiful gift of community, the more vulnerable one becomes to the inevitable ugliness of it. Now, I'll admit this to you guys as well. This is embarrassing. Uh, my therapist told me years ago that I was a, quote-unquote, introvert. I was appalled. No, I'm not, I said to the PhD with decades of experience. <laughs> no, I'm not. And he said, Josh, all that means is that you are energized by time alone. Can you believe that? I had no idea. All this time, I thought introvert meant pretentious butthead. <laughs> Actual psychological terminology. Turns out I was wrong. Because I actually like hanging out with people. In fact, I uh, enjoy it. I go out of my way to make that happen. Uh, but then, you know, I get all tired, I guess. My point with all that is that <laughs> at this point, I realize that human connection is necessary for mental health and human development. Lots of literature on this. Again, you don't need to come to church to hear that. The gift of the community of Christ is much more than those things. Community is the twofold answer to the human condition, that we need other people and that we need Jesus, and we can only learn to follow him with other people. Joseph Hellerman wrote that spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding, and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal 
personal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. In community, in real community anyway, we confront the sobering reality that we're not so great after all. And that in order to allow other people to carry our brokenness, we have to be prepared to carry the brokenness of our brothers and sisters. And that too is a gift. But it doesn't always seem like it. People want to go believe with other people, from book clubs to suicide cults. We want to be united by something more than just the species. So we follow that intrinsic lead to a group. You like the same music as me. You vote the same way I do. You agree with me on TV shows or sexuality or gender or even justice or existence or God. So we can be friends or we can occupy the same digital space until something rubs us the wrong way. Years ago, I was at a uh, pizza joint in Portland. We were sitting at one of those long tables where you can't possibly socialize with everybody, so you become confined to the conversation of your immediate vicinity. And virtually everyone there was a churchgoer, and this was Portland, so they were mostly like young millennials with apartments in the city, and they were designers and university students, or they worked at places like Nike or Intel. And a lot of us didn't know each other. We'd come with different groups of friends and become scattered in the chaos of being seated. So what do you do to get the conversation going? You talk about what's right in front of you, which was in this case pizza. The pizza, I argued, was too fancy, uh, too authentic. It was like paper thin and all soft. Others disagreed. The pizza was delicious, they said, but the atmosphere was all wrong. The decor was off trend. And we talked that way for a while, you know, superficial, safe. And then someone took the next logical conversational step. Where do you work? What do you do? Me, I worked for a church. So, oh, tell us more. We know about that church. We've been there. We go to church. And the conversation had broached like a slightly more personal dimension than pizza preferences, but it somehow resumed the exact same shape as moments prior. Some argued that the church was too hip. Others disagreed. The church's trendiness was acceptable, but its particular approach to worship did not suit their preferences. Someone mentioned that they did not feel appropriately welcomed upon their first and only visit to said church. And one guy took issue, I kid you not, this has always stuck with me, with the width of the pastor's pant legs. He said, I just don't trust pastors in skinny jeans. And I was like, oh, yeah, remember that part in the Apostles' Creed where they talk about how orthodoxy is vested in the, the width of your pant leg? Church, it turned out, was a lot like a Portland pizza restaurant. It was like any other Yelp listing, subject to our critique as consumers, what we liked, what we didn't, why, whether or not we are going to take our business elsewhere. And that is, after all, what we are. We are consumers. We are the byproducts of a lifestyle obsession. We are the illegitimate children of Grubhub and Amazon Prime. We've killed off our experts and crowned user reviews and uneducated influencers for their superior reliability. We get shopping recommendations from robots and uh, parenting advice from TikTok. So we objectify things. We sit like children turning the Christmas gift over in our hands, scrutinizing it, looking the gift giver in the face and telling them, we like these things about the gift, but not so much these other things. And there's all sorts of reasons that we do that, I know. And we've been hurt and we've seen some gnarly stuff, I know, I know. And yet, 
When I was uh, 20-something, a couple of my friends and me would routinely haunt the local video rental warehouse in our small town. You don't have these anymore, so let me tell you, this is a beautiful thing. We would rent a pile of uh, old B-movies on VHS, horror movies and monster movies and weird sci-fi stuff from like the 70s and 80s, and then we would watch them all in a night back to back to back, and we hoped that it would be really bad, because that would be funny, and we wanted to be shaking each other awake and saying, no, wake up and suffer through this with the rest of us. It's the same reason that people want to go on hikes together or find a gym buddy or, you know, like <laughs> run a marathon with a friend. It's the ethos, really, that binds beautiful things like recovery groups or even monasteries. We want to dedicate ourselves to something, and we know somehow that to orient ourselves against the grain of what's convenient is somehow good for us, and that if we do that with other people, we're more likely to do it at all, and that true friendship and family are both forged in the fires of hardship. Brothers, sisters, mothers, children, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. I was raised in the church in the rural deep south in the 80s and 90s. Christian family, quasi-Christian culture. So a lot of it was not so great. And some of that not-so-greatness did a number on me. Not a terribly unique story, I know, but I'm not the only one in the room that has what we now call religious trauma. I know the tangles in the whole thing became evident to me in my adolescence. I spent most of my early adulthood wanting to burn the whole thing down. And in the years beyond that, I just wanted to course correct. I realized, okay, so that was bad church. How do we do good church? But eventually, God burns away that anger and resentment. I loved church as a kid, and then I hated it. And then I was somewhat open, but mostly cynical. And then I was cautiously optimistic. And then I learned to love the church. And interestingly, across that whole period, people didn't get any better. The people didn't change at all, actually. All those years, after they had come and gone, God shined a light into the, uh, the kaleidoscope of my memory, and once entirely black. And now I saw things that I had not allowed myself to see in my cynicism. I, I remembered a woman from our church who rushed over and held my wailing mother after my mom got the phone call saying her sister had been killed in a car crash. I also remember a group of grown men giggling like kids because my dad accidentally dyed his hair red. And I remember a man from our church. For years, all I thought about this guy was that he was closed-minded, his rigidity, his fundamentalism. And then as if from nowhere, the Holy Spirit gave me this memory that when I'd felt like an outsider, he sat with me and listened to me and prayed for me one afternoon, and it meant something to me. Now, doing a good thing doesn't nullify having done a bad thing, but no person is one thing only, and the church is made up of people, these complex configurations of beautiful things and not-so-great things, and the whole of it is a gift from God. There's this weird, pervasive myth floating around in kind of post-evangelical circles of an alleged, idyllic, and long-gone Christian era during which there were no church buildings and no organized religious rituals and none of these modern contrivances. And so the cynical post-church person went looking for reinvention. A walk in the woods is my church. Hanging out with my friend in the pub is my church, whatever. 
we don't have these systems and authority or the petty, you know, the petty squabbling and bureaucracy, man. But then you read the New Testament and you realize how much of it is dedicated to church authority and dealing with sin and petty squabbles of local church communities throughout the ancient Mediterranean. Sure, they didn't have electric guitars and coffee crafts in the first century, but the basic components of the church gathering have endured for centuries of the Jesus movement all over the world. The coming together in a specific plan, consistent rhythm, in a specific place. All kinds of different people united around discipleship to Jesus. Not just affinity groups and pals hanging out based on shared interests and compatible personalities. There have always been hymns and singing and opening the scriptures together to learn, preaching, pursuing the spirit of God, rituals, communion, food and drink, leadership, authority. If you told, I think, a first century Christian... Oh, well, my church is. I just hang out with my good buddy, and we talk about spirituality. I think the first century Christian would have probably said, what the heck are you talking about? That's not church. How is that church? Belief has a kind of gravitational pull toward other believers. Religion, subculture, shared interests, we are wired to share that which compels us with other people. And when that gravitational pull brings us into the company of other people, if that thing that we'd hope to share penetrates deeper than superficiality or a screen, then the same gravity that brings us into the orbit of other people also brings us into vulnerability, and we can and will get hurt, and we can and will do plenty of hurting ourselves. It took me years to understand that all our terrible evil in spite of everything that we do to one another, we need each other. And God can and does subvert even the brokenness of community for good by using it to generate within us compassion and mercy for one another. An ever-present awareness of our ongoing need to be saved, all of us. The way I see it, there's two ways you can look at this. Either Jesus was wrong, community isn't such a great gift after all, uh, what with the corruption and brokenness and pain and all, or it's somehow the case that the inherent brokenness and inevitable pain of community do not make it any less a gift from God. Now, God doesn't engineer our sin just to make us more empathetic, and He doesn't condone our hurting one another for some greater good. Read all the letters to the churches throughout the New Testament. He takes all that stuff really seriously. But God meets us in the chaos and injuries of shared life, and He can, if we let Him, mock every attempt of the evil one to drive us out of the church by repurposing even the hurt that we endure and the hurt we distribute to instead bind us together in shared life for salvation rather than driving us apart. And that is a gift. God, aren't we broken? Have mercy on us, all of us. Yes, we need accountability, absolutely, of course. And we will need repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. Sin has consequences, it really does. But we can be more than a relationally conditional social club. I'm here as long as it works for me, I'm in it until someone wrongs me or tells me something about my own life that I don't want to hear or until someone around me fails. We can be more than that. We can be brothers and sisters, the gift of God to one another. All of it is a gift. 
brothers and sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now look, I obviously have a very long way to go, but at this point, uh, in my very few years, still very young, uh, I've already seen a lot. I've made friends, lost friends. I had people show up to the hospital when my kids were born. Um, and you realize how incredible it is to share something so, pr- so profound with other people bound together to you by the love of God. Not just my buddies, but people from my community, people I only knew from church that were sharing something so precious to me. When my dad was dying in a hospital up the road, Gerald Griffin, he went with me to see him and talk to the doctors. I doubt he wanted to go to the hospital any more than I did, but I'll never forget it. Then I, when my dad died, I couldn't, didn't have enough money to get back to Georgia for the funeral. John Mark bought my plane tickets. Bethany drove me to the airport. These are people from my church. The church became my family. I'm not from here. I didn't have anyone else around to do those things for me. That's the big, beautiful, easy to romanticize stuff. And there's also the hilarious stuff. This is some of my favorite stuff uh, about church. When I used to work here, I, uh, I would skateboard to the office every morning until my skateboard was stolen from the trunk of my car. A real life tragedy. And then A day or two later, a guy in my community group was walking to work in the Pearl District, and he saw some dude carrying my stolen skateboard. Oh, it was unmistakable with, you know, the markings on it and everything. And in this incredible moment, this is a true story, of spiritual clarity, he did did what any spirit-empowered brother in Christ would do. He took a deep breath, and reflexively, he said, you... And then he just snatched it out of the guy's hands and ran back to my apartment. That's right. That was beautiful. Feel free to use that story to inspire others about the Holy Spirit. Spur one another on to love and good deeds, that kind of thing. You know? That story is great. I have other stories that are worse or painful. You know, I've had people who love me enough, quite frankly, to take me aside and tell me, look... This is a real thing that someone said to me. When you were talking about that so-called difficult person at church the other night, you went too far. You slandered them under the flimsy guide of just venting. And you didn't demonstrate any kindness or compassion, just malicious sarcasm, and it's not right, and you need to repent. That was great to hear. And then I've had that same thing that I did the thing for which I was called to repentance done to me just recently. I spent months untangling a mess in which someone I once thought of a friend uh, as a friend went on what seemed like a mission to say as many terrible things about me to as many people as possible in what seemed like a sincere effort to bring either me down or the church down or something. It was miserable. And like I said, I'm not resigned to people behaving terribly. We should take sin seriously and we should deal with it with accountability And we can do that with compassion. I can say that from experience. But please listen to me on this, and this is where I'll get real with you guys. Maybe some of you won't like this, but I don't work here, so whatever. Um, (laughs) This is a nice place, this church. I don't know if you noticed. I say that sincerely. Uh, It's not just the razzle-dazzle of Christians' heavenly vocals, you know, or or Tyler's sermons and hair. Um, (laughs) I know these people, a lot of them, for a very long time, and they really care about you and about following Jesus with integrity. But look around, man. It's a nice big place with a famous Christian for a founding pastor and a great-looking live stream, awesome worship. Yeah, sure, but you cannot give your life over to a free concert and a TED Talk on Sunday. I get it. 
some of you, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm being presumptuous, but maybe some of you haunt this place as a social event. And I think I can speak for your church when I say that you're welcome, they're grateful to have you, but we are trying to live for something together, not host a free get-together with coffee. Are you kidding? I don't care about that. Somebody hurts you at a social event, you just drop it. Who cares? Do something else. Sermons and songs are wonderful, I would argue even necessary, but you can listen to both with headphones. That is not a family. And let me tell you, if you haven't found this already, following Jesus faithfully is going to cost you. Unwavering faithfulness to the truth of Jesus, courageous fidelity to orthodoxy, as you guys often put it, is going to cost you. I don't know what, a desire, a plan, a livelihood, something you wanted, something you were told you deserved, what you thought was your identity, maybe even a relationship that was precious to you. So, look around. Brothers, sisters, mothers, children, to do this at all, you need to be able to come through these doors week after week, circle up around a dinner table throughout the week again and again, and share your faithfulness. You need to be able to borrow someone else's faithfulness when you don't have enough. You need to be able to inspire and encourage by your demonstration of faithfulness when your brothers and sisters have very little of their own. And that is a gift, a gift from God. Now, I'll be honest, when I heard story after story about this person going on saying awful stuff about me that wasn't true, I was upset, uh, mad, to be quite honest. So I forced myself to pray for this person because I'm a Christian. And I'm trying to, you know, practice forgiveness and all that stuff. That's why I went into it. But as I prayed, God reminded me that I have been rebuked for the way that I've talked about other people too. And he didn't do it to say, gotcha, uh, you know, or to embarrass me or to discourage me or to somehow dismiss my feelings of, of being wronged. He did it, I think, to say, look how much you both need saving. And where else can you go? to work out your salvation with fear and trembling than in the community of God's people. The gift is that you are broken just like everyone else, and God's grace can make enough room in this community to carry both your brokenness and your healing. You don't deserve this family any more than the very least among you. It is a gift. And yes, I know that any of us can likely point to some institution or church who claimed Jesus and yet was guilty of some objectively heinous thing, I know. But when you have a community that, for all its mistakes and shortcomings, is trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus together, to flee for the com from the complexity of it all, not if but when we are hurt, often requires us to turn a blind eye to our own imperfections rather than beating our chest before God and crying out, have mercy on me, a sinner. You cannot do this by yourself. You can't. And you don't have to. That's the gift. Because there are men and women in this room, young and old, who want to follow Jesus, and they need you, and you need them, because he asks everything of us. Remember, Peter, we've left everything to follow you. We don't come here week after week, year after year to open this ancient sacred text, the scriptures together as interesting food for thought, as just some kind of decoration to our week. This is not a weekend retreat. This is not a book club. Are you kidding? I'm not giving my life over to some 
watered down, you do you, everyone is right, self-help spirituality. I am not offering you an option on the buffet table of modern spirituality. I stand, we stand with centuries of Christians who believe Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a costly thing to confess for us, not in the persecutions of the early church per se, but it costs us just the same. And the gift of God to hobble forward and walk the narrow road of discipleship is that we can do it arm in arm with brothers and sisters, mothers, children, and in the age to come gain eternal life. So it all depends on how you look at things. There was a time when church aggravated my cynicism. I scrutinized the people and the programs and the language and the form, whatever. But after decades of following Jesus, I now understand that while it's inevitable that in any, at any given church on any given Sunday, there will be people who believe weird things or who are guilty of hypocrisy and sin, the same is true anywhere you find human beings. But these people, they are coming together and all their imperfection to pursue Jesus, and that is beautiful and unique and holy. People haven't changed. My perspective has. I no longer labor under the arrogant delusion that I'm any better than any of you or that I know more than Jesus did and does. Jesus is my master, my Lord. He says that you are my brothers and sisters and all our great big flaming mess of humanity, a family and a gift. Thank God for this gift.